And I'm typing, and I could see above the dresser this movement and color of the music. And it was beige and yellow and these brushes. And I walked around to figure out where that sound was coming from. There was no stereo. There was no radio. And all of a sudden, I realized I was grooving to the dishwasher. Hey, I'm Christine. And I'm Gracie. We both have a brain condition called synesthesia, and we love it. It blends different senses together and makes our lives richer and more colorful. But my brother Ian, he's a skeptic. No, it is totally real. (laughs) So on this show, we meet incredible people and explore their amazing stories about how synesthesia is changing the world. From artists to musicians to thought leaders and scientists, People with synesthesia are everywhere, and they make our lives more colorful. Colorful. More. I hate Colorful. Welcome to SynPod. It works. <laughs> Jesse, your laughing makes it harder. <laughs> Welcome back to SinPod. I am one of your hosts, Grace Olmsted, and I am here with Christine Olmsted. Hello. And Ian Reed. Howdy doody, guys. <laughs> and we are delighted to have with us today Marsha Smilak, who is a fine art photographer. She's exhibited her work in galleries and museums around the world and is also a lecturer on synesthesia. Thank you so much for joining us today, Marsha. Oh, my pleasure. We were very fascinated by your work, which is absolutely beautiful. And you mentioned on your website that you first got into taking photographs because of writer's block. So could you tell us a little bit about the process that brought you to photography? I also have a PhD and used to teach college. Mm. Not that that matters, but in this case it did because I was writing a book. And the book was about Vietnam. And I'd taken the summer off, and I was on Martha's Vineyard. I'd rented a little cottage in the fishing village of Menemsha. And it was a very depressing book, because this was in 81. It was before the wall even went up in Washington, and nobody had told their stories. Hmm. So as they told them to me, I sort of became the sin eater. I started dreaming their dreams, and it was just too heavy. Mm-hmm. And I had a wonderful little cottage that looked above the harbor. Every day about 4 p.m., the fishing boats would come in with their catch of the day. And you know in Ulysses how the siren is a sound he can't resist? Mm -hmm. Well, that was the same for me, but it was the sound of red. Because they had red buoys. And when the sun hit them at 4 o'clock, I just heard the sound. And I'd never looked into synesthesia or anything, though I'd been told I had it. I thought, well, isn't that odd? I wonder if it is like synesthesia, but backwards. Because Mm -hmm. I didn't know you could be bidirectional. Yeah. And by the way, when you're bidirectional, it's not a loop. Like when I look at something that elicits sound, it's not the same sound as the one I hear from the outside world. But nonetheless, it goes back and forth. The rule in my life for almost everything I've ever done well is that I just get an instruction from my inner self that says, do it. I used to call it my have to. I have to do it. And every picture I ever took, I took based on my have to. Now, I had never studied photography. In fact, I'd never even used a camera, except maybe a brownie when I was little. So 
when people would say to me, how did you do that? Or what made you think of that? I was always very embarrassed because I didn't have an answer. I just knew I had to. So I didn't really know what I was doing, except that it was such a reprieve from stories of people dying in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I think in later years, what I figured out was that over a period of, of many years, I developed a picture language because I couldn't talk in words anymore. I suppose a psychiatrist would say, well, I was depressed. And I'm sure I was, but I just couldn't do words anymore. And suddenly I had this amazing, it's like Alice in Wonderland. You go in and it's another world. And every picture I ever took, I took based on my have to. I lived in this fishing village. So I was walking along the dock and all of a sudden something would make my head go like this. It was a sound, but nobody else heard it except mm -hmm. me. And I thought, God, I wonder if that's like synesthesia where only I experience it. I could see it in my mind. It was in the same vicinity as the other experience. But then I didn't think about it for another 20 years because it wasn't a subject. Hmm. First, I took the buoys and I personified all of them. I remember there was an army of buoys, but I was embarrassed to show them anyone because I wasn't sure if I wasn't crazy. I'd never seen anybody do this. It wasn't normal. If I'm the only one doing it, maybe I'm crazy. And then a good friend of mine who is a very respected writer came over for lunch and I said, let me show you this weird thing I did. And it was a cottage near where I lived, but it was upside down because when I picked the photograph up, I accidentally picked it up upside down. And he went, my God, you've discovered a genre. And I thought, well, he's no dummy. If he thinks that, maybe I don't have to be embarrassed about it. And so that was the beginning of a 30-year odyssey. And I didn't start taking these pictures, by the way, until I was 39. Let me just go back to the first time I was consciously aware. It's a seminal memory that I think you'll find most synesthetes have an early childhood experience where it just sort of stands out. You know, I never forgot it. And I was about six, and we had gotten a piano. I had to go back to school. It was lunchtime and they just finished installing it. And I ran in the living room and I just touched one note to see what it was like. And I saw a green rectangle of green light. And I took a crayon and I made like a green box thinking that when I got home, I could just play that color again. It didn't quite work like that. I mean, at the time, it wasn't even anything I thought to say to anybody. You know, you don't talk about breathing. It's very different from kids growing up now or synesthetic. Right. My mother used to tell me, just stop talking about your dreams. Because I think my dreams are all synesthetic, which isn't really surprising because it's still me. About 25 years later, I think I had just finished my PhD in English literature and I was living in Cambridge and I was doing laundry in the building. And I started grooving to the dryer because dryers have fantastic percussion. So I'm dancing, I'm, you know, completely uninhibited, and I twirl around, and there's a girl sitting there in a chair watching me. And I just remember being so humiliated, which is sort of the feeling I had any time I got caught being synesthetic, because I didn't know what it meant or how to explain it. But she was a psychology student, and she said, do you think you have synesthesia? And it didn't sound like a good thing. 
And then she was explaining what it was and nothing made sense, but she must have said sound color because I said, oh my God, would that be the reason I played a green note? And she said, yes. So I went upstairs and I happened to be doing some medical journalism for the Boston Globe at that time. This is before computers. So I had a lot of medical dictionaries and I looked it up and I found it between seizures and syphilis. And I thought, well, I don't know if this is something I want to brag about. It sounded like a disorder. It's since been redefined. It's no longer considered a disorder. It's considered a gift. And then the subject never came up again for 20 years. And then I guess I was in my late 30s. Someone who knew about it sent me an article from the New York Times. It was an interview with, you may know Carol Steen. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I read the article and I thought, oh my God, that's me. So I wrote her a letter and I just said, I hear with my eyes. And she wrote back and said, welcome to the club. Hmm. So that was sort of the beginning of me understanding that I wasn't alone. But in the beginning, I was kind of embarrassed. I didn't want to be like a professional synesthete, like a freak, which is the way it struck me at the time. But I got over that. It's so interesting because, you know, the people that are interested in it are mostly scientists, also art historians, musicologists. Have you met Greta Berman? Yes. Okay. So Greta, who was like one of my first uh, mentors, really, she was just learning about it from her students at Juilliard. She said that when she got her PhD, her teachers told her that synesthesia was just like a metaphor. They didn't think it was something real that happened. So she was still learning about it. And let me just ask you a question. I often wonder when I talk to non-synesthetes or synesthetes. It's my moment. <laughs> it's your time to shine. <laughs> well, you know, it took me a while to figure this out, that when I talk about I hear with my eyes, it's not these eyes. In fact, there are a lot of blind synesthetes. You don't need to have vision to see color. Uh, most of the blind synesthetes I've interviewed have been sighted as children. So there's some memory of color and stuff. But I think I'd been talking about it for 10 years when finally somebody said something. I went, you think I'm seeing it with these eyes? And they went, well, what other eyes do you have? And I went, well, <laughs> that's, I guess, you know, in some cultures they call it, you know, some kind of mystical third eye or sixth eye or whatever it is. The mind's eye or something. The mind's eye, Exactly. To go back to when you first took your early photographs, uh, the yes. photographs of the buoys, and you thought, oh, man, am I crazy? Am I just an insane person? I don't know if I want to show these to people. It's so hard to explain this. It wasn't like I thought this out. It's all very unconscious, the way this worked. And really, everything I'm drawn to works like this. I just know something. I just know I have to take a picture of that or whatever. So I wasn't even thinking I'll photograph reflections. What happened was I would go down to the dock and I would look at the water. I would try to take a picture above sea level. It was almost as if my camera had a mind of its own and it kept pointing downward because the colors on the surface of the water were so much more saturated. You know how rain can make colors really saturated on the road and stuff. And I just couldn't say no. Hmm. And I couldn't explain to anybody why I was doing it. In fact, I remember saying to this artist friend of mine once, you know, I think I took that picture on purpose. And she went, well, I assume you take your pictures on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a word language for it or anything. I just couldn't not take them. Mm -hmm. 
So I've been doing that about 30 years. And um, it's a genre I invented. Lots of people copying me now. What I loved about it, it was I could teach people to see. Yeah. Somebody would come to a lecture or something, and then I'd see them later, and they'd say, you know, I was walking along this pathway, and all of a sudden I saw what you see. Hmm. And I sort of think that's what teaching is anyway. Right. Everything above sea level is the main subject that you expect someone to focus on. Right. I was focusing on that which nobody noticed. Right. That was my main subject. It was exciting for people to see the world in a different way, I think. Well, so what strikes you uh, when looking at your photography is it almost does feel like you're looking into an alternate reality. I think you're right. And I'll tell you one of the reasons, I think. I photograph my emotions. Hmm. I mean, I look at 30 years of reflections and I've documented my emotions. And emotions are universal. So whether somebody looks at it and feels the same thing I felt when I took it, I did take it because of what I felt, not because of what I thought. Right. And I think that's the key to an alternate reality. That's an expressionist idea, kind of, to portray your emotions in your art. When you're capturing a reflection, is there an emotion that you're seeking? If I were seeking it, it wouldn't happen. Okay. It only happens when I'm not looking for it. Yeah. Because as soon as I'm looking for it, I'm too conscious Sure. For synesthesia to occur. I can't conjure it up. Right. Right. You know, it just surprises me. Right. Now, I think Alana said one of you, and I'm not sure which one is a painter. I am. What did you call it? In the flow? Yeah. Greta Berman said her students used to call it being in the zone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it is a trance-like thing. Yeah, yeah. I feel like for me, flow makes more sense just because it's like... It is movement-related. My synesthesia is moving at all times, and right. I'm resting in a place that I have no control over, and it's like I'm not there, but it's all washing over me. It's movement and feels like liquid. Well, that's exactly how I feel. Yeah, it's liquid. When you said washing over, that's just what it feels like. I mean, I totally understand that, and you do have to get in the zone. For me, it always felt like I was in a trance. Yeah. As soon as somebody would snap their fingers and wake me up, it would go away. So I tried not to be around people when I was enjoying my trances. Was that the power of the periphery? Yep. Ed Hubbard, who's a great synesthesia researcher, he's in Madison, Wisconsin now. He noticed that in my lectures, I kept talking about peripheral vision. This is the way I would take pictures. I would put my eyes on as I think of it, ready to go out with my camera. And I'd walk along the dock and I would purposely not look for anything. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm looking on purpose, I'm not going to find it. You can only find it when you're not looking for it. And so I'd walk until something grabbed my attention. It could be a color. It could be the light. It could be a shape. But whatever it is, when that happened, I would step back and then walk into that moment again. Only this time when it happened, I would notice where it was and what it was. And then I would walk over to it. When I take pictures, this might sound kind of weird, but... I kind of blur my eyes because I don't want to focus. I just want to swim in my emotion. Hmm. And it's generally a feeling I get in my midriff. I think we do have a lot of nerve endings there or something. It washes over me and I can't resist it. Yeah. At least for me, listening to music while I'm painting, that's when my best works are produced. But also it's like I'm not even there. 
I'm completely disconnected. I disappear. This podcast is brought to you by Distant Moon. Distant Moon is a new media company that specializes in crafting cutting-edge content and storytelling for a world that's tired of all the noise. We like to say that video views are fine, but emotional connection is way better. That's why companies like Google, Chobani, Booking.com, Stella Artois, Manchester City Football Club, and the FBI, yeah, that FBI, have all entrusted us with telling their stories on film and video. At the end of the day, our driving mission is to create clutch content that makes the world a better place with cutting edge brands and movements who are improving the world. That's what we call media production for a new era. Visit us and get in touch at distantmoonmedia.com. You've mentioned being a bi-directional synesthete. And I wondered if you could define that for sure. people who might not know what that is. Well, the best way I can define it is to tell you how I discovered it. I had been to Italy one summer. I had taken a lot of pictures in Venice. Although Venice wasn't like the ideal place because the canals were too narrow. But nonetheless, I had pictures I'd taken. And I came back and the radio was on like two rooms away but the sound was kind of wafting under the door. And all of a sudden I had the freakiest experience. What I was looking at in my pictures sounded exactly like the music that was on the radio. Hmm. And I thought, how could that be? So I went and discovered that the music was by Ravel, the composer, who happened to be bi-directionally synesthetic. Hmm. So on my website, I have like three videos where I match up the sound and music. I think I called it Rebel and Pink or something. So I didn't know it had a name until I went to a synesthesia conference. And I was told by one of the scientists that bidirectional is fairly unusual, I think. Mm -hmm. So how does it practically work, the bidirectional synesthesia? Do you hear a sound and that triggers you seeing a color or an impression in your mind's eye? Yeah, it doesn't like all happen at once. Sure. I don't know if this is a good example or not. I'm living in Columbus, Ohio now, and I gave a lecture to a psychology class at Ohio State. And they were all psychology students, so they were really interested. I showed them some pictures, and I'm discussing it. And one of the kids said, could you describe the way a sound looks to us right now? And I said, I've never tried, but I could. So I said, be quiet. Let me listen. And I heard this sound. And I said, well, all I can tell you is that what I see is six silver strands that had a lot of reflection to them. They were like silver strings or something. And that crossing over them was a very light, like a piece of net or something. And he said, you're really freaking me out. And he said, look up. The sound is coming from the projector. And the projector had a grid exactly like I'd drawn on the board. I don't know how useful it is to be able to hear a grid. Bidirectional doesn't mean it's happening to me at the same time. It means I can have it happen in either direction. Mm -hmm. It was really only when I listened to Ravel that I had it simultaneously in both directions. Interesting. 
So you've mentioned Martha's Vineyard and Venice. Have you found your work obviously has a very integral tie to water. Are there certain places that you find you gravitate toward in order to take photographs that resonate with your emotions and your synesthesia? Well, you know, it's primarily water. But what I'm really interested in is the movement of the water because it keeps changing and metamorphosing. Yeah, I mean, Martha's Vineyard was the perfect place for me to create the genre and teach myself how to see. And I hate being in Columbus, Ohio, where I'm really landlocked. But I also have had the experience of synesthesia and taken some pretty good pictures just by looking at any reflective surface. Like one night in the kitchen, I was looking at my strainer, which happened to be metal. And all of a sudden, there I was. I took a self-portrait. My eyes just really go to reflections, whether they're on water or on something else. And do you think that that's something that's a part of your synesthesia, or is that just something that you as an artist are drawn to? I'm not sure I can distinguish those two things. Going back to the question about peripheral vision, what I was really describing was the fact that I'm not looking for it and something just grabs me in my peripheral vision and suddenly there I am. This didn't happen to me before I was taking reflections on water. I don't know. It's not conscious. Synesthesia affected me. I was a math major when I started college. I remember this calculus test. You know, when I was working out the problem, the solution was green. So I thought, oh, well, I must have gotten 100. And and my test score came back and the professor had taken two points off because it was supposed to be a negative two. And I had solved it as positive two. Well, numbers have colors, but they don't have negative and positive colors. Hmm. So if I'd done a little more thinking, I would have put it on the right side of the graph. Interesting. And also, you know, when I did my doctoral dissertation, I'm pretty sure that every author I wrote about was synesthetic, though I didn't know it at the time. Hmm. I wrote about Flaubert. I wrote about Joseph Conrad. I wrote about Nabokov. And Nabokov is a very famous synesthetist. He's one of the few people who's actually written many years ago. I think it was My Colored Vowels or something, My Colored Alphabet. By the way, I don't have a colored alphabet. Either of you have a colored alphabet? I do. We yeah. Do, yeah. You do? Okay. Well, what I have is numbers and letters have personalities and gender. Like number two is always wearing shoes. <laughs> That's the picture language. Mm-hmm. I always have the picture language going along with whatever brain activity accounts with our other thoughts. Hmm. So you've mentioned that you started taking photographs when you were working on a project that was just extremely weighty and emotionally difficult. And I think you've mentioned in the past on your blog some struggles with depression. Mm -hmm. Your work is extremely emotional alongside that. Have you found that art is an outlet for some of those emotions in a form of therapy? Or would you say that it's something that just corresponds with whatever you are, are experiencing I would at say, the time? I would say that I've saved my life with art many times. Hmm. When I have that experience, and it's really ecstatic, and you can't be depressed if you feel that. Yeah. Like you were saying that you're almost gone from the room and you're painting. You're, just, you're not there anymore. Well, that's the way I feel when I do art. Yeah. I remember I had this depression and they put a computer on my arm to see if I would be cured by light therapy. 
And there was a special doctor at McLean's that did this. And he came back and he went, you are impervious to your surroundings. Like nothing changed according to the time of day, you know, or anything like that. But I think he was wrong because light is the secret. Hmm. I mean, if it wasn't for light, I wouldn't have color. Right. If it wasn't for light, I wouldn't have shape. Yeah. It's the light that just sent me off on this ecstatic experience. Hmm. Hmm. Could you tell us the names of those pieces and, and what perhaps those reflections were? There was never a particular piece. It was okay. the process. Okay, gotcha. And I'm sure you've heard this from other synesthetes that the colors I'm mentioning synesthetically are not colors I've ever seen in the natural world. Hmm. Because really what I'm looking at is colored light. Mm. You know, I, I mean, I remember when I was little and saw that, I think it was a D on the piano, and it was green and it was like brownie in motion. It was alive. Yeah. You know, animation comes pretty close to showing you what it feels like. Right. Done in a certain way. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Oh, what I was going to say about the picture behind me is I was photographing bait barrels and I was under a bridge. So I had this great Caravaggio like lighting and there was a red barrel and a green barrel. And, and um, all of a sudden I went, oh my God. There's the green I saw when I was little. Hmm. And if you can see it, it's the way the light is hitting the green. You painted this piece then? This isn't a photograph? No, I, what I do, I call painting by camera. So I don't paint. This piece looks like a painting. It's a photograph? Yes, but wow. I think most of my pieces look like paintings. And so I even yes. named the genre painting by camera because right. I'm not interested in mirror images of right. things you know it doesn't move me let's say i sit and i go to the dock and i'm watching the boats come in and everything and i go at a certain time of day you know it's the best early in the morning at noon and just before sunset what i'm looking at matches what i feel inside and then i know to click the shutter hmm. yeah but it's like painting by camera because i'm not doing it by myself i'm collaborating with nature right and that's really important yeah the first lecture I gave in California, I remember the moderator said later, you keep giving all the credit to nature. And <laughs> she said, you did make a few choices there. <laughs> but I'm just struck by the design right. of nature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What are some of the big lessons or takeaways that you've had as a result of your life experience of synesthesia and that you've kind of taken away from your reflection series? I still take reflections when I can, but I don't know. I think maybe I'm the last person to be able to answer that hmm. because I'm still not able to think about it. I'm only able to do it. It's also hard to teach it because when I used to teach writing, I remember I would say to the students the first day, only write about what you feel, not using words like feel, but, you know, I say, write something you've never told anybody else and I won't tell anybody. I was trying to get them to get to the point inside them where I get my have tos. Hmm. You know, everybody's got them. They just don't have access to them. I, don't know. I wish I had a better answer. That was a good question. What practical advice or do you, is there any practical advice you can give to help someone reach an ability to come to their have to? I think it's very important to not think about it too much. Hmm. Just put yourself in the vicinity of where if you were creative, it could happen without people interrupting you. And, you know, I'm not sure I would have 
discovered my synesthesia in the way I did with photography if I hadn't moved to the vineyard, which is very quiet. In mm. yeah. Menemcha, where I lived, is particularly quiet. It only has 800 people. I've taught a lot, but I don't seem to remember anything I ever told my students, except to listen to themselves. Yeah. And also to remember that you can't do it wrong. Hmm. And the other thing I used to do in the writing class is I would say, I'll give you a word, and then I want you to write about it for three minutes. And if you have nothing to say, I want you to just write. I have nothing to say. I have nothing to say. Just don't put your pen down. And I think the word in my first class where I did that was snow. And everybody looked at me kind of like I was crazy. And then they started writing. And maybe it was more than three minutes. But by the end of the exercise, everybody had written about something they didn't expect to write about, hmm. a memory. Yeah. I think memory has a lot to do with everything. Yeah. Hmm. I think that advice to make space for silence almost is what it sounds like you're saying. Exactly. Uh, is something that is really difficult to do and really important to do. I think each successive generation is more and more surrounded by the noise of social media and Instagram no and comparison to, you know, what everyone else in their peer groups are doing. Yeah, I mean, our everyday civilization doesn't allow right. so much for yeah. silence breaks. Hmm. Yeah. I think I was lucky because I was a professor so I could take the summer off. Right. At the vineyard and that was really where I discovered everything. Yeah. But also as a writer, I use my synesthesia in writing in a different way. There's one essay that I should send to you that I wrote called Straddling Layers of Consciousness. It was for an anthology coming out in Germany of, I think it was all synesthetes, that had to answer the question, how does synesthesia affect my style? And I didn't even understand the question. So I just wrote about how I used it as a writer. I was using an IBM Selectric typewriter. And I loved that because I loved the percussion. The sound was very important. And I had music on a couple rooms away that kind of wafted under. And I'm typing. And I could see on the right side across the room above the dresser, I could see this movement and color of the music. And it was beige and yellow and these brushes. But if I looked up to look at it on purpose, it would go away. Huh. It was only in peripheral vision that I saw it. And it didn't interfere with my writing. If anything, it just sort of made it more enjoyable. And so afterwards, I walked around to figure out where that sound was coming from. What was it? And I went upstairs and nothing was turned on. There was no stereo. There was no radio. And I sat down on the steps and said, okay, Sherlock, how hard can this be to solve? I didn't imagine I heard music. And all of a sudden, I realized I was grooving to the dishwasher. But then I would turn it on on purpose because it had a really nice beat. And it was sort of old. So there's a lot of like, you know, how brushes sound on cymbals. Yeah. And I remember I called up my closest friend from childhood who, when I tell her things, she says, that's synesthesia talking. Because we're so alike in so many other ways. Hmm. So I was telling her the story. And my point was that there's a self-consciousness if you talk about it when it's happening hmm. that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So I would say I get embarrassed sometimes if I'm talking about dishwasher music and I don't realize that I'm the only one who's hearing it. Mm -hmm. And the thing about writing is I was so lost in my thoughts 
And the way I write is pretty much like this picture language and I just am describing what I'm seeing mm -hmm. in my mind. And then seeing this design of the dishwasher at the same time, I wasn't really conscious of anything. I mean, when I went back and would read what I wrote, I would like it, but I didn't exactly remember what I'd written. Hey friends, just wanted to reach out and say thanks for listening to the show. As you know, it's produced by a boutique media production company in Washington, D.C. called, you guessed it, Distant Moon. And we've got a request for you. We want to know what you're interested in. Is there a question you've always had? Or some aspect of life, history, science, literature, pop culture, or literally anything that you'd be interested in seeing a series about? Have you always wished there was a podcast or TV show about a specific topic? Let us know what you're interested in hearing about or watching. And if we like your idea, we might just make it into a TV show or podcast. So send your ideas, requests, questions to contact at distantmoonmedia.com. That's C-O-N-T-A-C-T at distantmoonmedia.com. We can't wait to hear from you. Anesthesia in and of itself is kind of a subversive experience. And I wonder if that mm -hmm. is perhaps one of the reasons why we have so many synesthetic artists, because they seem to have in their own conscious experience of the world this subversive element that helps them tap into the peripheral vision, like, like you point out. Well, I've never thought of it as subversive, but it can be several words. Something I wrote about trying to describe what it's like to be a synesthete. And I said, you know, my first experience when I was six years old and I heard a green note on the piano, on that day, there was a room opened in my mind that had not been opened before because mm -hmm. it was real what I heard and what I saw, but it wasn't on the outside. But I didn't even worry about the outside then. It was just that that room never closed its door again. Yeah. So I feel like, I have access to that. I think it has to be from having synesthesia because synesthesia, it needed to open its own door because where else would I have seen it? You know, I see it all in my mind. It's not like I see it on the outside. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, it goes with what you're saying. My uh, other room is just built in. But if I didn't have synesthesia, I wouldn't have it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's an interesting idea. I spend a lot of time alone. Hmm. You know, I'm like the friendliest introvert you've ever met. <laughs> you know, when I was on the vineyard and living there and it wasn't summer, I would think nothing of taking three or four months and not talking to anybody and just writing. And I seem to require that kind of solitude. Hmm. Yeah. So it makes it hard to get married and have children. <laughs> children do tend to interrupt solitude. That's their favorite thing. <laughs> well, the thing about children, though, is they're so joyful yes. and the experience is so joyful that they're almost not a distraction. Hmm. The kind of solitude I need is to not have to go 
to parties. This is kind of a jump, but I just saw an article by Warren Buffett talking about what his key to success is. And he said, you have to learn to say no. Hmm. And what he meant was that if you're working on something you really care about, and somebody says, here's another great thing you can look at, but it will distract you. He says no, Mm -hmm. because he'll never finish what he's focused on if he says yes. And that seems sort of subversive. Hmm. Constraining, but in the way that then opens the doors you need to get the ultimate work accomplished. This is just a difference of words, but I wouldn't use the word constraining because constraining implies a will to shut a door. Mm. Whereas mine is more like just go to sleep and dream for three or four months. I mean, I'm a big dreamer and I was surprised to learn that not all synesthetes are. My dreams are far more interesting than my life. (laughs) Me too. I have dreams that are like plays and, you know, suspense and, A lot of dreams, I answer questions that I was trying to answer when I'm dreaming because I believe my dreams. Yeah. You have bidirectional synesthesia, which is very cool. And most of us will never get to experience that because there's so many different types of synesthesia. We're always curious if you could have another type in addition to the kinds that you Mm -hmm. have, what kind of synesthesia would you have? Well, first of all, I would never want another form because I have so many now (laughs) that I think I would have no time. But hypothetically, you know, it might be the alphabet. (laughs) Some of my letters are green and lavender, but I don't have like what Carol Steen has, where she has a whole alphabet. Yeah. I'll tell you which kind I probably wouldn't want to have. Yeah, let's hear it. James Waterton, who is an English synesthete, he has certain tastes. For names. Mm. In fact, I remember I was at a conference with him and he said, let's meet for dinner and talk about tastes of babies' names. <laughs> oh, <What>? weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, only because he said it to me, I, it struck me funny, but I knew he meant it. Yeah. yeah. And I remember him saying that my name tasted like marzipan, hmm. which made it very easy for him to be friends with me. But he said, how can I go on a date with a woman and tell her your name makes me want to throw up? (laughs) And I said, well, can't you change the name? And he said, no, because I already know what Mm. her name is. And I thought that was a little disabling. Yeah. Although he's doing just fine. But, um, (laughs) you know, it might be interesting to have the kind of synesthesia that uh, Richard Feynman, the physicist, had. And he would say... I look at my students and I think, how do they figure this out? I'm standing in a field of colored numbers all the time. Hmm. But his was numbers. Yeah. I don't know if I had to choose another kind. Trying to think what kind do I not have? (laughs) It would probably be the alphabet. Just have a colored alphabet. Although I think it would drive me crazy too because I have a lot of friends who get in trouble with that. There was this (laughs) researcher, Chrétien von Kampen, who wrote about a woman in France who... I think blue was two, and she used to always pick up the number two bus, and then they painted the bus. Oh, dear. And she could never get on the right bus again because she got on based on the color of the number, not based on the meaning of the number. Does that make sense? Yeah, it would be very confusing. Oh, it would be so annoying. I don't think she thought it was like a huge problem, but. I did meet somebody once who had been in a car accident and had some brain damage. And he said, 
he had synesthesia for about three weeks and it totally freaked him out. <laughs> he hated every minute of it. I mean, I think synesthetes are born with it. And so they discover it pretty early, even if they don't know what it's called. So to me, it's totally normal. Hmm. You know, sometimes when I take photographs, I take it because of the way the images taste when I look at them reflected on the water. Hmm. Like there was this one um, shack in Menemsha that elicited Neapolitan ice cream. I don't know why, but I go back there every 10 years or something, and there it is, my Neapolitan ice cream shack. Hmm. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people think it's association. I mean, it definitely involves association because that's really what we're doing here is I'm associating a color with another experience. Yeah. Hmm. I think there's still a lot people don't know about it. Yeah, a lot of mystery to still uncover. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for taking the time today. We are so looking forward to seeing some of your favorite work. Yes. Well, this was fabulous. I loved it. You guys all asked fantastic questions. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much for listening to our show. We're having a blast making it, but we're just getting started and we need your help. If you want more episodes and to hear from some of the leading artists, thought leaders, and scientists discussing how synesthesia is shaping our world, please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, the Apple Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you can get each awesome new episode automatically delivered to you. And please leave a review. That's one of the best ways for people to find our show. This show features Christine Olmsted, Grace Olmsted, and me, Ian Reed. Our producer is Alana Varley, and the show is mixed by Nickelback's most loyal fan, Jesse Eastman. Our title music is by Virgil Arles, with additional music by Captain and Thad Kopeck. Synpod is recorded and produced by Distant Moon Media. Catch you all next week.